1: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships. Hello
0: and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Selman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Ottolenghi, and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry.
1: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before as the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed.
0: So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague, Connor, to tell us more about this week's episode.
2: Hello, podcast
3: listeners. I'm Connor, a producer at Intelligence Squared, and welcome to this week's episode. Today, we were joined by Callum Williams, author of a new book entitled The Classical School, to discuss the great economists and debunk some popular myths about them. So Callum sat down with economist and broadcaster Linda Yu, who frequently hosts the Intelligence Squared podcast, to answer questions like, what did Adam Smith really mean by the invisible hand, and whether Karl Marx really predicted the end of capitalism. So some really interesting conversation They also answer some relevant questions to the current coronavirus pandemic, and we hope you enjoy it.
2: Hello, I'm Linda Yu, economist, broadcaster and writer. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and online events at intelligencesquare.com. I'm here with Callum Williams. Firstly, welcome, Callum. Tell us why you wrote the book.
3: Well, I wrote the book really as a, as a course of kind of self-education because there, there were a lot of economists that I'd kind of, you know, I, I've read their stuff uh, in, in passing, but I, I hadn't ever studied it in great detail. And I noticed that often it was the case that newspaper articles in particular, but also books, would refer to some of the big, the, you know, the big cheeses of economic history. So people like Adam Smith and... John Stuart Mill and, and David Ricardo and so on. And it's a, it's a very common sort of rhetorical technique of, of newspaper columnists in particular to, to quote one of these people when they want to, you know, back up an argument they're making about, about whatever it might be. So I wanted to give readers a sense of, well, what did these people kind of actually think? And, 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 and where did their ideas come from?
2: What time period do you cover in history? And how did you decide how far back to go?
3: In terms of the the first person in the book, that's uh, Jean Baptiste Colbert, who was uh, Louis the finance minister. He's the first person in the book, and that's in kind of you know the mid sort of seventeenth century around that around that period. I chose that really because what you see around that time is is the emergence of of capitalism really broadly defined as a, as a sort of mode of production you know feudalism is long gone and you start to see the emergence of trade on a large scale you start to see the emergence of markets on a large scale and and cru- most crucially for me you start to see the emergence of people talking about this thing out there called the economy for the first time so that seemed like a fairly logical place to start. In terms of the where the book ends, I end it with Alfred Marshall who was a Cambridge economist kind of at the beginning of the 20th century and that seemed sensible really because after Marshall and partly because of Marshall what you get is economics becomes a lot more technical, a lot more mathematical and it starts to have a somewhat different role in the public sphere. Economists with the exception perhaps of Keynes are less public intellectuals and more the kind of plumbers of the modern world. So that seemed to me to be a good place to end the book.
2: So Alfred Marshall passed away in, as you say, the kind of early 20th century, 1924. Now, I know you don't cover the Spanish flu, it's not really a classical economics topic, but was there, we'll talk about COVID-19 a bit, but was there anything from their thinking that derived from the Great Influenza pandemic of the late nineteen tens that we should just chew over as we face our current pandemic?
3: Yes, I think I think there is. I, I think what one of the one of the arguments the book tries tries to make as 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 stridently as possible is that when you're talking about economic theories, it's it's kind of important to look at the economic conditions that prevailed at the time. So the argument I try to make is that economic theories emerge kind of in response to uh, particular trends that are taking place. So for instance, if you look at the work of someone like david ricardo in the beginning of the 19th century he's very very pessimistic about the ability of capitalism to deliver sustained improvements in uh, in living standards for for ordinary people and he's similar just like his great friend malthus he feels feels who feels, feels the same thing and What you can see is, if you look at the data, is that around that period, beginning of the really the first half of the 19th century, living standards were improving very, very slowly, or perhaps even going into reverse for the majority of people. So I sort of make the argument that, in a way, it's no surprise that they would have such pessimistic theories about how the economy works whereas if you look at someone like John Stuart Mill particularly towards the end of his life he starts to be a lot more optimistic about the potential of capitalism to deliver sustained improvements in in living standards and it's no surprise that from about 1850 1860 onwards you do start to see pretty rapid increases in in real wages in in take home pay for the for the for ordinary people so what I would, I think, argue from this book is that what's happening now with the pandemic is ripping up a whole load of rules about how the economy works. So, for instance, you know, it's quite common in normal recessions, governments let businesses go under. That's what happens. You know, bankruptcies go up and governments let people go unemployed. Unemployment goes up. That's, that's a very common way of dealing with a crisis. But What's happening now is that economists and economic theories are changing in, in quite a significant way because what governments now are saying is, actually, ideally, we'd like to stop all bankruptcies. Emmanuel Macron has been very explicit about that. He said, we do not want there to be any bankruptcies in France as a result of this pandemic. And governments are also trying, although perhaps not as successfully as they would hope, to stop anyone from becoming unemployed. And so what I think you'll see over the next few years in response to this pandemic is that economists, just like the economists in the 17th and 18th and 19th century, start to revise their theories in light of what has happened in the real world.
2: Yeah, it's certainly a time to rethink, I think, economic theory. So now I'm going to ask you about how you selected the 20 economists who feature in your book. Now, I know it's hard to choose. And I know because I wrote a book on The Great Economist. So yes, yes. Well, but one has to choose. So how did you choose?
3: In terms of the selection, you know, it's if you do kind of some casual searching on, you know, who are the, the, the biggest names in uh, in economic history, inevitably you encounter almost exclusively white middle-class men. So, you know, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Malthus, uh, and so on. What the book tries to do, though, is to, is to show, and I hope it shows it fairly convincingly, is that it's not the case that white middle-class men are the only people who have ideas about the economy back then. So per- perhaps one example I could give you, is is Harriet Martineau, who now is a complete unknown she was an author in the middle of the nineteenth century. She was a novelist and she was incredibly popular in her time. She outsold Dickens her books were that popular and what and but she's included in this book because the purpose of her novels was to try and convey economic ideas and economic theories to quote unquote ordinary middle-class people who were buying books because there was all this high theorizing going on at the time but it you know these were books that were hundreds of pages long and uh, really difficult to read and really complicated and so she said you know I'm going to take these ideas I'm going to study them and then I'm going to convey them in a way that you know anyone can understand and in her time she was enormously influential but she's now totally unknown I think because I mean, I don't know for sure, but I think it's because the books themselves that she wrote were pretty bad. It's pretty bad writing, but she was nonetheless (laughs) pretty popular. Um, I mean, some of them are just sort of laughably, laughably bad. So, you know, it seems right to to, to look beyond the, you know, the the sort of classical people that you might look at. I mean, another person that I might just quickly uh, slip in is... A, a guy who was uh, Britain's first Asian MP, that's generally agreed by historians, who was called Dada by Naroji. And he came to the UK, again, uh, sort of around the time that Karl Marx was writing. So kind of in the, mid, in, in the mid-19th century. And, and, and he was really one of the first people to consider in a, in a systematic way, what's the impact of the British Empire on India? And most economists i mean almost all economists up to that point had not really considered that question at all. I mean even Karl Marx, who was you know always looking out for the, for the ways in which capitalism was was, was, was evil and was destroying the world, doesn 't really consider colonialism and imperialism in anywhere near the same amount of detail as he does you know, western capitalism but now Raji has this theory called drain theory about how Britain is impoverishing India, and the really kind of tantalizing thing about that is you know again now Raji today is is totally unknown he died you know having not written that many books and but what 's so tantalizing is that towards the end of, uh, uh, towards the end of marx 's life, marx and naroji apparently kind of had a, a, a dinner party together somewhere in London and Marx was captivated by all these ideas about how you know British and Western imperialism was uh, impoverishing the global south and you can start to see in his letters very shortly before he died that he starts to think about these ideas a bit more but then of course he dies so it's a kind of tantalizing prospect that had Marx lived a bit longer then perhaps now Roger today would be a lot more famous.
2: I'm going to now start with the first economist that you've already mentioned that you begin with. Uh, so this is Jean-Baptiste Colbert, uh, who lived between 1619 and 1683, and he was influential during the reign of Louis XIV. You associate him with the increased use of mercantilist policies. In France, which is the, based on the belief that nations should run trade surpluses, so tell us more about his story and why you start the birth of classical economics with this French economist.
3: Well, I start him. I start the book with this guy really as a way of trying to explain what mercantilism was, because mercantilism was the kind of dominant economic idea during the during the 1600s and and, and up until the middle of the 1700s. And as you say, that was the idea that you know, the mark of economic prosperity was, you know, how much can you export over how much do you import? And the idea was that your exports need to be as big as possible, and your imports need to be as small as possible. And the idea behind that was that you would therefore be able to accumulate a lot of gold. I mean, that's the most basic version of of the theory. And Of course, you do see echoes of this um, today. I mean, Donald Trump, I think, has often been described as being mercantilist. You often see a lot of mercantilist rhetoric in uh, the discussion about Brexit, the idea that Britain runs a trade deficit with the EU and therefore the relationship between Britain and the EU uh, is in some sense unfair. What, the, what I try to do in this, in, this, in this chapter is to explain why the idea of mercantilism was so alluring to so many people, but also why, in fact, a lot of economists, in fact, almost all economists today view mercantilism as a flawed theory.
2: Uh, it's certainly topical um, in terms of uh, where our economic uh, debates are. I think it really does suggest that economic ideas have been around for quite a long time and history does repeat itself from time to time and I rather like that you started the book with a French economist because we do tend to think of Adam Smith as the father of economics but as you write about and actually and I also wrote about is that he took his influence from um, some of the early French economic thinkers the physiocrats who emphasised the importance of agriculture so the roots of economics actually go back beyond Adam Smith and the Industrial Revolution, as we tend to think of it. But your next economist is a British economist, Sir William Perry, who lived between 1623 and 1687. Now, you associate him with an early attempt to measure national output, which, of course, countries now regularly do as gross domestic product or GDP. And I love this quote that you include by Adam Smith, who said, quote, I have no great faith in political arithmetic. (laughs) Yes, Um, yes. How how did views uh, change um, on this in terms of measurement? And why do you think Perry is so overlooked?
3: So that, I mean that's right. So Adam Smith was after after Petty about sort of a hundred years or so after, and and he he I mean I think Petty in a way has a has a has a better claim to be you know the first economist than Smith does because as I say he's you know operating a century before, and what he tries to do uh, that no one else has done before is kind of apply ideas. New scientific ideas that were emerging both in Italy and in England around the mid 1600s uh, to do with science and chemistry and biology and so on, but to to apply th- those ideas to the study of the economy and what he does is he goes he goes to ireland and he tries to basically measure do a demographic study of ireland a kind of census of ireland and then tries to do the same thing for for england now i think the reason why smith doesn't like this approach and is quite snooty about it and i, I don't think he actually even mentions petty by name in his book you know it's a, it's a real kind of it's a real kind of uh, it's a real kind of snub by by smith 100 years later i think the idea is that all of the calculations that Petty is doing are pretty kind of—he's sort of sticking his finger in the air and just guessing a lot of the time. And I, you know, so for instance, what he does is he says that the GDP of England is about forty million pounds, which is actually not a terribly bad estimate. Uh, later historians have have c- concluded, but he kind of reckons it's about forty million, and then kind of works backwards to to work out. You know, to, to sort of uh, sort of reverse engineer his his estimate of GDP. So he'll say, you know, well, I reckon that livestock is worth 10 million, and I reckon that buildings are worth 30 million to, to kind of get to his 40 million figure. So it's all pretty kind of slapdash. But I think what's so good about Petty and what's so kind of modern about Petty is that he he sort of sat down and said. You know, we have to try and measure this stuff if possible, because if we don't, we don't know how policies, uh, we don't know which policies are needed and we won't ever know which policies were successful.
2: Speaking on Adam Smith, you also refer to him in the next figure that you write about, David Hume. Who lived from 1711 to 1776. Now, you argue, although he is known as a philosopher, Hume should have received more credit for his economic ideas, notably the role that money plays in an economy. And you say Adam Smith, uh, just to give his date, 1723 to 1790, ignored the contributions of his friend, including in Smith's seminal book. The Wealth of Nations, which is considered really to be the uh, the major text that launched economics. Yes. So why did this happen? Why did he snub his friend?
3: Well, this is a great question. So they were they were friends. I mean, they were like seriously close friends. And you know, in the kind of when you look at uh, some of the detailed history on Smith and Hume, I mean, there is a suggestion that they were um, even more than friends. Uh, to put it uh, to put it sort of delicately, so Smith ignored Hume's writings on trade and what and what Hume does is he basically tries to take on the idea of mercantilism and to and to show why it's such a stupid idea and the idea to sort of summarize very briefly is that H- uh, Hume worries that a country that runs a trade surplus so a country that's exporting more than it's importing will over time become less competitive on international markets and that's because gold will rush into that country and it will push up the level of prices in that country and that will mean that their exports become less competitive. Now, on the face of it, that sounds very much in line with what Smith argues in The Wealth of Nations. I mean, The Wealth of Nations is primarily a text against mercantilism and arguing in favour of the benefits of free trade for all rather than the benefits of free trade only for those countries that manage to run trade surpluses. And historians have to speculate as to why Smith didn't include Hume. I think the best theory as to why is that what Hume basically says is that yes, it is true that a country that runs a trade surplus will become uncompetitive over time. But crucially, Hume says, that doesn't necessarily happen straight away. So it might be the case that a country that runs a trade surplus can be, can seem fairly prosperous for maybe a year or two years or even longer. And that kind of more subtle theory, in a way, is not suitable for Smith's book, which is, a, in a sense, a kind of piece of propaganda. He's trying to... S- explain in really strident terms that mercantilism is completely and utterly stupid so he can't entertain the idea that even in the short term mercantilism is a good idea so he has to just get rid of all that subtle thinking from Smith uh, from from Hume excuse me and uh, and therefore decides to ignore it altogether which is a pretty harsh judgment on his best friend
2: yeah indeed the wealth of nations was actually published um, in 1776 so Adam Smith had taken a decade to write it but he indeed timed the publication to influence the American War of Independence, and he did use quite a lot of this argument in terms of saying that Britain doesn't need colonies, you can trade with anyone, regardless yes. of their status. So
1: Exactly. Yeah
2: absolutely uh, absolutely fascinating. Now, as well as uh, Smith and Hume, um, you include a number of prominent uh, figures. We won't have time to go through all of them. So I'm just going to pick up a few. Now, we've already talked a bit about David Ricardo. And obviously, the father of international trade in terms of his theory really has come, I think, under quite a lot of criticism, under a lot of Pressure in terms of whether or not he underemphasized the importance of losers from trade. Of course, he was writing yes. between se- he was he lived between 1772 and 1823. So this is a period where they were fighting against this notion that you should run trade surpluses. But still, there are benefits from trade. But did he do uh, underemphasize the importance of thinking about who loses um, from international trade?
3: That's a great question. I mean. I, I of course, the things that I, f- I guess the first thing to say is that, you know, until pretty recently, I'd say most economists didn't think all that much about the losers of trade. There was a sense that, you know, if there were losers, they would be very small in number and the effects would be temporary. I think more recent research has suggested that there are more permanent losers from trade. I, I, I think that Ricardo, in a way, can... Uh, you know can o- only really see the benefits of trade for for ordinary people my th- and i, th- I think it, it's for this reason so at, at the time that ricardo was was writing britain had pretty high tariffs on grain uh, food basically coming into the country uh, those are the corn laws and ricardo argued very strongly against the corn laws on the grounds that they raise the cost of food and therefore the cost of living, the pri- you know, the, the biggest cost of living for, for for the vast majority of the of the population. So Ricardo and Malthus have these long arguments where Malthus, who is more interested in preserving the status quo, being a member of the landed gentry and, and so on, is arguing against the idea of repealing the corn laws, whereas Ricardo, who is more of an up and coming businessman who is not part of the gentry and is more progressive and wants to see big reforms take place, is arguing for the abolition of the laws and free-trading grain. I don't think it ever occurred to Ricardo, to be honest, that, that there would be any, a, any damage caused to people in Britain from free trade. I think it's only really perhaps when you get to this guy, Rogi, that you start to see perhaps the beginnings of a, of a recognition that not everyone benefits from free trade.
2: Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, it has become uh, one of the biggest areas that we're still yeah. talking about today. Absolutely, um, yeah. But now it's
0: time for a quick break. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared plus our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much.
2: Welcome back. I'm here with Callum Williams talking about his new book, The Classical School. We're going through some of the 20 extraordinary economists that he profiles and discusses their ideas. Now, Callum, the next one I want to pick up on is Thomas Robert Malthus, who lived between 1766 and 1834. Why do you think Malthusian ideas continue to hold, in some respects, quite a
3: largest way. They do. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, they're, they're incredibly popular still. Just to quickly recap that, you know, the Malthusian ideas really uh, kind of talk about the... The notion that there is overpopulation and that as a result of overpopulation there's going to be some enormous famine or something that will befall the country and there will be you know terrible economic consequences and that the what the world needs to do in order to be more prosperous is is to have fewer children basically and and Malthus is writing about this in the in the 19th century as you say in relation to he's focusing on a, a number of countries but mainly on on britain and 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 a little bit on america and he what he's saying is the reason why there's so many poor people in britain is not because of you know bad government regulation or because of 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 lack of regulation or anything like that it's it's purely because working class people are incapable of controlling the number of children they have. And as a result, they have more mouths to feed and they put themselves into a kind of self-induced misery. And, and, and he, he argues that pretty strongly in the first edition of his uh, essay on, on, on population, which is published at the end of the 18th century.
2: I want to move on to John Stuart Mill, who is in very well-known philosopher of that era and indeed since, but tell us about his economic contributions.
3: So Mill is, in a way, the most perhaps is the most surprising figure of all because, I suppose, I don't think it's too far a stretch to say that John Stuart Mill didn't really like capitalism all that much, which is a, I mean, is. I think most people will find that pretty surprising because he's often held up to be one of the you know the fathers of economics. And if you search for a picture of Mill online, he he looks kind of very gaunt, and he he really looks like a Dickensian character who's you know kind of Scrooge-like and obsessed about getting money and all that kind of thing. And and actually, he he he, he there's a lot about capitalism that he doesn't he doesn't really like. So in particular. What Mill is, is worried about is that people will start to feel alienated and as though they don't have any control over their lives under capitalism. What you've got during Mill's era is the start, you know, big companies are starting to emerge. Markets are growing very quickly. Trade is growing very quickly. And he's worried that people are losing a sense of control over their lives. And, he's, and, he, and, he, and he goes to America and he's particularly worried about what's going on in America because... For him, America is a country which is just purely obsessed with money, and nothing else matters anymore. And I think what Mill has in mind uh, for people is a kind of, you know, he's a he's a pretty you know well educated guy and had a pretty pretty uh, privileged upbringing. Is he basically wants people to to have a a much sort of wider and and more varied form of life. So what he starts to argue is that um, capitalism can't grow anymore. It's and, and, and there's various reasons for this which I won't go into. But he basically says you know, capitalism's reached its point where further economic growth is impossible. And this is a very convenient way for him to say, so what we need to do now is we need to focus our attention on having a better quality of life. And for him, that means we need to focus more on redistribution of the income and the wealth that we have created. And in particular, we need to focus more on, you know, uh, less about going to work and uh, working hard and, you know, commuting into work every day and focus more on stuff like poetry and walking in nature and are arguing with each other about politics and stuff like that. So he has, and and in particular, one more thing I would say is that, you know, he's not saying the economy has to stop. But he's saying that it needs to be in a very different way. So in terms of business organisation, he doesn't like the idea of there being a kind of boss and a a worker because he thinks the worker is kind of not really in control of his or her life. So what he wants to do is expand things like cooperatives and worker-owned businesses because for him, people who are in control of their lives and in control of their economic lives um, are basically much happier and uh, have a much wider sense of freedom.
2: All right, sounds like we all need to reread this chapter in your book and the works of John Stuart Mill. (laughs) These ideas are certainly um, uh, being uh, uh, being looked at quite a lot um, these days. Um, Next economist you focus on is William Stanley Jevons. Uh, He lived between 1835 and 1882. So tell us about him and what is the marginal revolution?
3: So Jevons, uh, William Stanley Jevons is not, today one of the most famous uh economists and you know certainly in the book um and and i talk about the sort of puzzle of that because um in many ways he's he's he you know he's had one of the biggest impacts on on economics and i think what you see with jevons is he's a turning point in the sense that before jevons Uh, economics was not very mathematical but after Jevons it becomes noticeably more mathematical and what Jevons basically does is he reads uh, Smith and he reads Mill and he reads Ricardo and he's very open about this he says basically all of these thinkers these great thinkers are in some sense vague and imprecise and they're just not very good um, because they don't use maths and so what he does is he says, I mean, you know, I've got this project, which is to bring maths into economics in a systematic way. And I think that emerges most clearly in the discussion of um, supply and demand, which really is is given its most kind of easy to understand and intuitive uh, formulation uh, in the work of Jevons. The question of why he's not better well known today is a hard one to answer. I think the reason is basically because Jevons died quite young. He died in his uh, in his forties, um, and also crucially, he he wasn't like a very rich guy, and he didn't work at one of the most uh, prestigious universities. And as a result, um, he didn't have a kind of. Uh, field of students who were able to carry on his work and and popularize the books that he wrote um but nonetheless if you, you know when you open uh, uh you know economics research today uh, it's very common to see a lot of numbers and a lot of algebra and so on. And I think for that, we 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 would owe that really to Jevons. So
2: for generations of economic students who didn't like maths or graphs, and you would put the, put head, the finger yeah, at
3: yeah. Jevons, okay? A- absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah.
2: But um, indeed, the, re- the introduction of things like mathematics, of things like graphs and curves, um, that essentially paved the way to thinking about economics in a kind of marginal sense was the additional value from the last unit that's added and that's quite that has become a fundamental building block of how we do economic analysis and that's captured by the next economist that you cover which is Alfred Marshall between 1842 yes. and 1924 who is very well known for what he described at his as his book of graphs where he literally put demand and supply curves into a number of different contexts to illustrate how we get to an equilibrium, how we get to a certain quantity and price for a good in a particular market. So Marshall is known as the father of neoclassical economics So just describe a bit about him and how he changes the classical school.
3: So I suppose, I mean, I I think today a lot of people are quite uh, sort of sniffy about Marshall on the grounds that he didn't really kind of come up with any you know really kind of revolutionary theories what he really did was to kind of systematize and to put into graph form and to algebraic form all of the theories that had come before him kind of as you describe and you know there's a there's a kind of fierce historical debate about whether he was the first person or the second person or the third person to to use the supply and demand curve but i think uh, so i mean there is that side of him for sure he was you know he wrote this textbook that was Uh, used at all of the universities for a long time so in that sense you're absolutely right he's the father of neoclassical economics and you know the modern economic textbook owes a uh, owes a great deal to what to what Marshall did but I think there's another side of him which is less appreciated which in a way makes him even more influential which is that he was someone who took it upon himself in a very active way to get him get involved with the debates about economic policy that were happening at the time and he became you know He's a bit like one of those experts now, economic experts that you now, you know, you, you will see if you're watching a select committee hearing in the House of Commons or whatever. You know, they're brought in to give their expertise on, on various things. And he was brought in to give his expertise on loads of things from trade to, to poverty and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, he was someone who was able to marry academic research. Uh, he was at Cambridge with being a very practical economist uh, in a way that feels actually very modern. And he was really the first person to do that.
2: I'm now going to move on to um, Karl Marx. Given the ways in which Marxism was really diametrically opposed in a number of respects to the classical economists, their ideas, why include Marx?
3: Well, I included Marx because, A, because he's, you know, A, because he's very famous uh, and is someone that is, you know, one, was one of the most popular uh, economists at, at, at the time. But But B, because... There's a lot of overlap between the, 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 the kind of uh, conventional classical school, so Smith and Mercado and and, and Mill and so on, and, and Marx. And in fact, if you look, if you think about what Marx was trying to do in his work, he is not, he's absolutely not trying to come up with a, a, a totally new way of thinking about the economy. That's a misconception, I would argue. What he is doing is he's studying the works of people like Smith in particular and also Ricardo and Malthus and he purports to have discovered sort of oversights that these economists had made, and that a lot of the theories about the economy, he actually copies from from the classical, from the rest of the classical school, but changes them in one kind of crucial way to show that capitalism, rather than being a system that is actually great and will result in everyone becoming happier and richer, is actually completely the opposite of that, and it's a system that will result in more and more people becoming impoverished and as you know, a small class of capitalists becoming richer and richer. So Marx is very much within the capital school, uh, the, the classical school, but kind of tries to undermine it from within.
2: Indeed, in fact, he described David Ricardo, the classical economist, as actually the greatest economist. But he criticised Ricardo for not taking his ideas about capitalism far enough.
3: Exactly. <laughs> so
2: Marx argued
3: exactly, exactly. Yeah,
2: take it past the exploitation stage of those landowners, and what is the next stage in Marx's view? Um, his theory, uh, communism. <laughs> um, right. And but you actually take the influence on Marx back pretty far, because you refer to Simone de Sismondi, who would live between 1773 and 1842. So um, you have a chapter on the Swiss economists, and describe the ways in which you thought this economist's uh, perceptions about the exploitative ways of capitalism, which he would have observed in the early part of the Industrial Revolution, how did this affect the Karl Marx, and who um, yeah. obviously lived after that, between 1818
3: and 1883. I mean, so, yeah, Sismondi is a, is a, is another person that uh, Marx is is definitely indebted to when it comes to formulating his own theories. So Sismondi is before, and Sismondi is liberal in the sense that Adam Smith is liberal and Ricardo is liberal. You know, they are they are largely pro uh, pro capitalism and largely not keen on big amounts of government intervention, but what Sismondi kind of says is it's it's not dissimilar really to what Mills starts to argue kind of you know uh, decades later, which is that there's something slightly kind of gross about capitalism in some quite hard to hard to explain way where the idea that people are competing with each other constantly in order to better themselves means that they lose something crucial about, about, the, about the world. And what Sismondi does is contrasts pre-capitalist days with, with post or currently, you know, with current, currently existing capitalism as, as he sees it. And he basically says, you know, before capitalism came along, everyone, you know, lived in nice families and everyone was very nice to each other. And they lived in the countryside and people could just pick apples off the tree and they didn't have to work very much and all that kind of stuff and and then capitalism comes along and everyone has to move to big dark cities where there's you know where mortality is really high and people have to work for a long time and all that kind of stuff and you know to be fair to him the the data on this kind of shows that he was sort of right in the sense that if you look for instance at how tall people were their height, you can see that in the early part of the Industrial Revolution, there is a very noticeable decline in how tall people are. And that's because of poor nutrition, people moving in cities and can't, you know, get the food they need. And if you look at things like life expectancy, you know, there are places in the UK, in the first half of the 19th century, where the life expectancy is is lower than 30 and, you know, you know, 25. and, And I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And so it's not surprising that you have people like Sismondi saying, well, actually, hang on, you know, have we really made progress here? I mean, what Sismondi says is rather than Marx, who's saying, well, we need to abandon capitalism, Sismondi says, well, what we need to do is regulate capitalism. So in that sense, he's liberal. He thinks the state has a role to play in things like minimum wages, in the regulation of working hours and that kind of thing. So Sismondi, you can see why Sismondi was appealing to Marx, but Marx goes a lot further than Sismondi goes.
2: In addition to Marx, you devote a separate chapter to Friedrich Engels, who lived between 1820 and 1895. Now, I sometimes describe Engels as the most overlooked co-author um, in yeah, terms of 100%. economics. Um, so tell us about why you devoted a separate chapter to Engels and how he contributed to economics as well as the communist revolution, separately from Marx. Right
3: yeah yeah no i completely agree with your description because i mean he's overlooked and also among people who kind of study marx and stuff often he's he's often the butt of jokes because he's seen for various reasons as having uh actually done damage to the marxist cause by um because his theories were, were overly simplistic and were easy to criticize and and he's also criticized for having like edited marx's work in slightly bad ways and, and that kind of thing but I, th- I guess what i try to argue in the chapter is a, is a number of things about why actually he's better than people suggest and i think i guess one of really easy to understand reason is because what he actually does is he tries to get marx to think about things like real world data and about the economy in a in a, in a, in a systematic way so when marx was studying he studied for a phd in philosophy in, uh, in, in Hegelian philosophy, which is incredibly dense and very abstract. And he was perfectly happy to be writing these kind of incredibly hard to understand, Marx was this, is, you know, hard to understand tracks about philosophy. And then Engels comes along and says, look, I mean, why don't we incorporate some kind of economics into this? And you know, I, I I think it would be good for you to study, you know, reports about data and look at actual look at the look at the world around you and really try to understand the economy. So I, I think without Engels, Marx would never have been able to study the economy in the, in the way that he did and also wrote in a more kind of engaging way because of Engels. I guess the other thing I would say is that there are some very key Marxist ideas which, in a, in a sense, emerge first in in the works of in the works of engels so for instance the idea that capitalism is prone to crisis is you know engels has a good claim to be the person who kind of came up with that idea even though it's now seen as a kind of marxist idea so what had happened in the beginning of the 1800s is that obviously there were crises and economic recessions and all that kind of stuff but most economists like ricardo would say okay the reason we have a crisis is because of some external cause that has nothing to do with capitalism itself. So, for instance, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you get a load of people coming back to, to Britain having been fighting. And so, you know, they're all looking for jobs and unemployment's kind of high and it's pretty unpleasant. So, Ricardo says, you see, the thing about crisis is it's always got some cause that really, capital- it's not really capitalism's fault. Whereas what Engels says is actually no. He points to loads of examples of crises where there's no obvious external cause and says, actually, I think there's something inherent about capitalism that leads to crisis. And it's that idea that Marx then takes on and makes his own.
2: Your book covers a number of less well-known figures that we've already discussed a few of them. But I want to uh, finish on your final economist who isn't very well-known, Rosa Luxemburg. She lived between 1871 and 1919. She was one of the few women to obtain a PhD during that era. So tell us about her contribution. And why is she not well-known?
3: It's a good question. I mean, I think her exciting and and, uh, dangerous life is perhaps more well-known than her theories. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's just gone 100 years since she died, as you say. So they, they, they got a bit more of a look in, her theories got a bit more of a look in more recently. But I, I think what's really interesting about her is that, uh, sort of for two reasons, one is that she's a Marxist theorist who nonetheless was very willing to criticise Marx and um, that's interesting because I think a lot of Marxist scholarship, even that you read today, is uh, is quite nervous about doing that because he's seen as the kind of, you know, a great man who, who could do no wrong. So the fact that she did that is kind of interesting. And then secondly, she has these quite interesting views about, again, about imperialism, a bit like Naroji. And her argument really is that capitalism... Uh, needs to expand beyond its borders in order to sustain itself. So it needs to expand into poorer parts of the world. Uh, capitalists need to colonize other countries in order to make sure that there is an ever-growing market for their for the goods and services that she produces. The theories themselves have come under a lot of criticism, and I, I, I you know, I I don't think they're I don't think they're, they're they they re- they represent economic growth correctly. But nonetheless, she she has this kind of way of making you think about. The need for capitalism to, to keep growing and keep growing and keep growing, which uh, particularly in a time of climate change and, you know, worries about ecological limits and that kind of thing is, is actually pretty eye-opening. So I was very keen to include her in this book.
2: Well, one of her theories that you write about is around stalling growth. And um, so do say a bit about that, because I think there's a lot of uh, current resonance in that as well.
3: I mean, definitely before the, before the pandemic came along, there were, uh, and particularly in the kind of you know 2012 to 2016 there was a lot of talk about this idea of secular stagnation which is this idea that for reasons that are not well understood the kind of trend growth rate of the economy has slowed and so whereas perhaps in the 60s or 70s you know countries like America and the UK were growing at 3 or 4 or 5% or even even higher um, now uh, people are pretty pleased if we can get away with one and a half to two of, percent of GDP growth. And, uh, you know, I think if, if Luxembourg were alive today, she would be saying, you know, this is proof that, you know, the end of colonialism and the end of uh, imperialism has, has finally resulted in what I always predicted, which was that, um, uh, you know, capitalism would inevitably be unable to continue growing. I think there are, much better explanations for why economic growth has slowed, in particular to do with demographics. But, you know, what's kind of great about her, her work is that it makes you, it does make you question, you know, why this is happening and, and what might be done in order to get the, the growth rate back up again in a sustainable way.
2: And finally, what would the classical economists advise about addressing the COVID-19 pandemic?
3: That's a very good question. Well, I think uh, it, it sort of depends on which one you, you asked. I mean, certainly uh, you could imagine people like Marx and Engels seeing this as an opportunity to open up a new space for political debate. And you see that very clearly on the left at the moment where they're saying, you know, this is unprecedented government intervention in the economy. We should we should sort of seize on this moment and, and, and turn it into something more permanent. I do think you probably would have some economists are, are very much on the other hand, like Malthus, who would argue, and I think John's early John Stuart Mill would say the same thing, which was that, you know, this pandemic is the result of, you know, overpopulation or something like that. And so what we should just do is let let the pandemic take its course, because that is the that, that is what, you know, God has willed. And so therefore, we shouldn't try to interfere with it. I think the later economists, like Jevons, and I, th- I think Smith, actually, but also Marshall, would be much more in line with what is, is actually happening, which is, you know, there's a serious problem on our hands. We need to enact policies as quickly as possible to protect uh, incomes and to protect jobs and to protect firms from going under. And so I think they would argue pretty much in line with what we've what we've seen across the world in recent weeks.
2: Absolutely fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Callum. This intriguing and eclectic collection of economists gives a colourful sense of the turbulent start of the economics field. So I hope people will pick up a copy as The Classical School is an entertaining read. So for more podcasts, please go to intelligencesquare.com. And thank you very much for listening. I'm Linda Yu.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket.